And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, August 15th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, count the inspector general among the challenges facing Social Security. Plus, things are cooking at the DHS Procurement Innovation Lab. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, a 200-year-old law created to protect the government from paying for goods and services it may never receive. That's the latest obstacle for agencies trying to acquire cloud computing services. GSA lawyers are interpreting the Advanced Payment Statute, which originated in 1823, in a way that's causing agencies to pay a 10 to 20 percent premium for software-as-a-service subscriptions. In his weekly Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why this interpretation is causing major headaches for agencies and industry alike. Why are GSA lawyers saying it applies to cloud computing? Well, the purpose of the advanced payment statute is really to protect the government against the risk of a contractor non-performing, right? Namely, hey, don't pay for something that you may never get, right? So if you think about back in 1823, if you were contracting with the army for uh, food and the food never showed up, that was trying to protect the government. Now, GSA lawyer says because software as a service is a quote-unquote service in agencies, you know, as you buy it from the GSA schedule and other acquisition vehicles, you can't pay up front. You have to pay in the rears. And unlike, Tom, you know, your electricity bill, your water bill at your house where you're paying for something that you've already received, that's the consumption-based model. But when it comes to software as a service, that's more like a magazine subscription, right? If you remember, you used to get 52 issues of Sports Illustrated. You pay for all 52 issues up front, and then they'd come each week. But that's the way they're interpreted as more like your water bill, your, your electricity bill versus your magazine bill. Now, companies and acquisition experts say GSA's lawyers really are conflating the term service. Cloud services and software as a service really entails more much different things than, say, food or even paper and pens. So this is a big problem because then you've got kind of the issue of the government can't pay for it in advance, but yet the companies must feel they can't start it until they've got a payment to get it started. Absolutely right. And there's an inconsistency going across government as well. GSA lawyers interpret it one way. The Defense Department lawyers interpret it another way. It's not a level playing field. Tom, this all kind of started because I, I, read, I wrote a story a couple months ago around the DOD DOS contract. And when I wrote that story, I, some folks came out of the woodwork and said, hey, this is not just a problem for DOS. This is a problem for all agencies when it comes to buying cloud software as a service through GSA. There's two things happening. Number one, because you have to pay in the rears, companies are charging the government more. You know, I heard from different value-added resellers, VARs, 10 to 20 to 25% higher rates because they're paying it for it by the month. If they would buy, let's say, a year's subscription, they would pay much less. Uh, in, in fact, Tom, I talked to one vendor, Minburn Technology Group, and they told me they could try to offer a government customer a seven-figure discount for their software buy, and the government had to say no because they, of this interpretation of the law. Tom, this is millions of dollars now the government is spending that they don't have to. Sure. And on the other side of the coin, the companies are have to carry this this bill because if Minburn or Kerasoft or DLT Solutions, if they go to Microsoft and say, hey, we want to pay for a monthly, the response is, well, we're not set up that way. You need to pay us up front for the year and then you'll collect your money monthly. So they have to almost take a loan out to pay for the government's interpretation. So it's it's pressure on both sides and it's costing taxpayers in the end millions and millions of dollars. Well, is there a fix to this and does anyone want to try to fix it or can the government just be content with paying the premium all 
all these times. Because it's so inconsistently applied, I think there there is uh, definitely an appetite to fix it. I think slowly the General Services Administration is coming around, even though lawyers may not be. But Larry Allen, who's a guest on your show quite often, Allen Federal Business Partners, has been working with House lawmakers and Senate lawmakers to draft basically a technical amendment that could be potentially put in the NDAA to fix this problem. In fact, he offered this technical amendment and was hopeful that the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee would accept it and add it to the NDAA. He is not as confident as he once was a few weeks ago that that's going to happen, but there's still some hope that that folks will will see it. And I think there is some appetite on Capitol Hill, how much there is, given all everything they have to do. This is a very minor change, but who knows if they will accept it or not. Right. And Congress could, I guess, do something with that 200-year-old advanced payment statute. So is GSA going to try to get to this? Or are they waiting for Congress? I mean, what, what happens next here? GSA is uh, at least taking some more active efforts. Because, Tom, if you think about how much money is spent on cloud computing, I asked GSA just roughly through the cloud special item number, the SIN, this is just through the schedules contract, there's almost a billion dollars in 2022 spent on cloud services. And there's, you know, about 1,600 contractors, about a, a, a 662 in the cloud computing special item number, and over 1,000 in the software licensing special item number. So again, a lot of contractors being affected and a lot of money and the inconsistent application is really bothersome. So GSA has released a request for information. And Tom, we have that linked up on federalnewsnetwork.com for folks to find it. They're still accepting comments about 10 days or so. What this RFI is asking is, hey, how do you sell cloud services? How do you sell software as a service? How do you sell it in the private sector? How does it sell in the government? And they're just trying to learn from this to understand the issues better. And what I've been told from GSA spokespeople, again, is, a lot of these responses to the RFI will help them you know, deal with this issue and understand how the commercial payment and invoicing practices are different than what the government currently does. And maybe they can change some policy and change some rules and maybe get the lawyers to change their mind. Tom, I had a really interesting conversation with a former GSA official the other day and, and said to them, hey, why can't why do they have to even listen to the lawyers? Don't lawyers just advise and consult? They're not really setting policy. And that person said, you got to listen to the lawyers, even though technically they don't set policy, because if you don't and you're doing something that lawyers have interpreted as, quote unquote, illegal, that could put you in some hot water with your IG. So I think that's part of the reason why GSA has not yet uh, just changed the policy. Yeah, it's kind of like an extension or some kind of relation to the Anti-Deficiency Act, where you can't spend money that you don't have appropriated which means this could devolve into, say, a government lapse in appropriations or something, or, you know, if that should happen temporarily, same I issue. Think there's, yeah, there's a lot of concerns that as well. I mean, if you buy a subscription for 1,200 licenses and only use 900, are you also dealing with some, some problems with the law? Are you, you know, kind of getting, being paid for something you didn't receive? So I think there's a lot of kind of pieces and parts that you have to understand the way cloud works. But at the same time, you know, I, th- I think a, a company would much rather – you know, get money for 1,200 licenses and refund 300 licenses worth of dollars versus being paid monthly that they're not set up to do, that doesn't happen in the commercial sector, that you know more or less exactly how many licenses you'll use for, again, for Microsoft Office, for ServiceNow, for Salesforce, and very similar, you know, types of non-consumption-based cloud computing services versus, hey, if I'm going to AWS or Google or Oracle or Azure, those are more consumption-based, how much storage I'll use, how much compute power I'll use. And I think that's where it's being conflated. And, and you know, even some folks said this is a marketing issue based on cloud companies. It's their own fault, the way they marketed it to uh, the government. Now they're kind of feeling that pain, you know, years later. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure.
And be sure to check out his reporter's notebook now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, things are cooking at the DHS Procurement Innovation Lab. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It doesn't have boiling flasks or people in white coats, but a lot happens in the Procurement Innovation Lab operated by the Homeland Security Department. For an update on the pill, as they call it, we turn to its new director, Catherine Crompton. Ms. Crompton, good to have you with us. Hello. Thank you for having me. This goes back to 2015, so this is kind of one of the more mature labs of its type in the government, I guess. Fair to say? Yes, fair to say. And I think, if I remember correctly, I think it was the first lab, which now has generated additional labs and other organizations, which is super exciting. And in your years of procurement, do you have a lot of digi badges? <laughs> actually, fun story, or maybe not so fun, is I actually come from the DOD. So 25 plus years in the DOD, and I just started my DHS career here in February. So I am really catching up to the team on digi badges, and I have a wonderful team that when I step foot in the door says, you will get them. So that, and I, I think I'm at level two. So I'm not at level three yet. I believe I just hit my level two. And we should, I guess, tell the listeners what a digi badge is. I, I thought it was kind of cute when I saw it on the, mm-hmm. on the website. So what a digi badge is, it's kind of like a badge of honor. And uh, I'm going to mess up the terminology of what they use, but it's pretty much crawl, walk, run that concept and basically the first digi badge is you you're you're walking you're starting your journey and there are certain things you have to go through like attending a boot camp and i believe watching a webinar it's it's very very small those first steps of what you have to do and then you walk so you're going to add the next level you're going to maybe start coaching where you're going to get that you're getting those skills and those techniques that really help you be an innovator in the procurement space. And then level three is like the master digi badge where you've coached multiple projects and you've done some other things. So it's really a badge of honor. Recently this year, we started giving, it used to be internal to DHS, and now we are actually giving it to external agencies or participants who come in and participate so that they can put it on their on their email and display it. And it's, it's fun to see when people on LinkedIn are like, I got my digi badge or, or it comes across as an email. It's just super exciting. All right. Now the pill, the procurement innovation lab then really is a way of getting ideas from the components of DHS that have a procurement or acquisition challenge and the learning is then promulgated throughout the department? Yes and no. So that is a goal. And I think that's a goal that you're going to see in the coming years from the procurement lab is really gaining those ideas, what the innovators on the ground are doing, because that's really where these great ideas happen, great ideas that change the landscape of how we can procure. It's happening at that operational level. So creating mechanisms from those who are in the weeds, per se, of doing the work to help us better innovate. But Yes, because the components are the ones who are bringing the projects to us, and we are learning the lessons from them, from the challenges that they have gone through, and that's helping us revive the innovations that we have. I think we're up to 19 or 20 now. My team will probably shake their head if I got that number wrong, but again, I'm still in learning mode because I am new to the pill. 
but that helps us revise what we are teaching. Then also we are supporting the periodic table of acquisition innovations, which is gaining those innovations and those techniques across from the federal space. So we're helping to develop that. And that's where we're really capturing a lot of use cases and user stories of innovations and techniques that they have used to help streamline and break down some of those roadblocks and barriers and procurement. And of course, DHS operates under the federal acquisition regulation like most mm-hmm. agencies do, not all, but most of them. Would it be fair to say that innovation means using the FAR and the provisions in the FAR, which are quite flexible if you know them all, to, right. to get things done, perhaps just to exercise uh, muscles people have never used or pull some tools out of that toolbox they weren't even sure they had, but mm-hmm. th- that can really get a job done? Yes, that, it, it does center around that because contrary to popular belief, the FAR is extremely flexible and clearly states, it clearly states in FAR Part 1 that we should be innovating. It says an exercising initiative government members of the acquisition team may assume if a specific strategy, policy, or procedure is in the best interest of the government. And if it's not addressed in the FAR nor prohibited by law, then pretty much do it. So a lot of people feel when the FAR is absent, then you're not allowed to do it. Whereas it's truly if the FAR is absent, then you do have that leeway to do it. So there is a lot of flexibility. And it seems to be our own internal cultures, policies, procedures that we put on top of the FAR that makes it seem burdensome. We're speaking with Katie Crompton. She's director of the Procurement Innovation Lab at the Homeland Security Department. And every year there is a pill boot camp. What happens there? So we actually have multiple training opportunities. One is the boot camp, which is the original. That is the bread and butter of the pill. That's what we became known for was offering that training. And it's offered actually outside of DHS. It's offered across the federal sector and now even to industry. So that teaches our first set of techniques. And then now we have the pill boot camp next level, which then gives you some lessons learned from those techniques that you got taught in boot camp, but also provides additional techniques and innovations that you can use. And then our third offering is the coaching clinic. And that is for individuals who want to start to coach teams and do things like the pill and help mentor and support others to, to use innovations within their own organizations. So those, those are kind of the lanes of training that we offer. And it's very exciting that we are also offering that to industry, industry only offerings where they can come in and kind of it takes away that curtain from government procurement so that they can understand what we are doing so they can better propose and so that they can um, do it more efficiently with less resources. Yes, the implication here is that industry needs to be a part of procurement innovation. Yes, they do. They are our partners in that. And so many times we tend to try to sit across from the aisle from each other. And one of the things that we actually do as part of our post-award interviews on every single project is we actually interview industry and get their feedback. What worked? What didn't work? What didn't you understand? How can we make this better? Because that really helps us develop strategies that eliminate those those roadblocks that industry finds it hard navigating in the federal space, especially for those small businesses or those new entrants coming into the federal workspace. And it looks like the innovative procurement techniques fall under four basic areas, lowering entry barriers, I presume, to industry, encouraging mm-hmm. competition, shortening times to award, and increasing successful outcomes. And you have a whole lot of different sub-techniques under those or actual ways to get those Mm -hmm. done, such as group oral debriefings, for example, 
follow-on production authority clauses. They get pretty technical. All of the techniques that you're trying have those basic rubrics over them? Yes, they do have those basic rubrics over them. So one of the things and one of the very popular uh, techniques is confidence ratings. So we're very used to seeing acceptable, unacceptable, marginal, highly satisfactory, exceptional. Um, Those are kind of the the bread and butter of evaluations. So what we have found is using confidence ratings of, hey, I have confidence that you are going to be able to perform this or provide this product versus going through this very detailed, exceptional or unacceptable and providing that feedback and then using those confidence ratings, then with an advisory down select. So once we've established that we have confidence in your offering, then we can provide a letter saying, it's highly likely you will be competitive in this next stage, or it's highly unlikely you will not be competitive. And that gives industry an opportunity to decide if they want to continue to spend the resources or they don't want to continue to spend the resources. It also provides enough feedback of how we evaluated them that then provides, one, better competition because so many times industry tells us, I didn't have a chance, so why did you keep me in in the pool? So by giving them the choice, that that's giving them the power of what they want to most of the time we find the industry appreciates that. And when they have been provided that feedback, they don't waste their resources because their resources are just as valuable as our resources. So by by providing those techniques that increases our competitions, it makes it easier for industry. And then we're going to have a better chance of outcomes because then we are really being able to focus on those entities that really can provide that product or support that mission with a higher confidence than that traditional methodology. And your yearbook that is put out by the pill every year lists Mm -hmm. a number of projects, some from DHS components, some from other Mm -hmm. departments and other agencies, pill procurement projects, triple P's, I guess. (laughs) And give us just one or two examples of these projects that have used innovation and the results they got. Yeah, sure. No problem. So in our last yearbook, one of the stories I'd like to highlight, which I think is really relevant for this time of year because it's the push to year end, you know, instead of the March to March, it's the push to September 30th. And so many times in the procurement world, we are given last minute requirements, whether fall down money, new things come up, like we got to get it done. And we're given very constrained timelines. So on page 16 of the yearbook is the NPS project. Now, granted, this was a simplified acquisition threshold project, but the techniques and how they approached it is completely relevant and valuable to any person with a year-end requirement. They used oral presentations, on-the-spot consensus, confidence ratings, and advisory down select to be able to do an award in 33 days. And and probably most people think, oh, $250,000 in 33 days? That should be normal. But it's very surprising how sometimes those $250,000 procurements take us a lot more time than (laughs) people would expect. So that's just a really great highlight of how They use those techniques in a time crunch to get it done. And I think that's very, very relevant considering where we are in this time of year. Another one is the one that we presented this year at the NCMA World Congress, which was the fusion procurement. And where that is, it's not consolidation, it's not bundling, but it's where you take multiple requirements and put them in a single solicitation that allows you to streamline your documentation, your reviews. It streamlines it for industry because it's one-stop shopping. And they can propose on all, they can propose on one. 
And there's multiple awards that come out of that. So, so it allows us to combine our resources, not only on the industry side, but the government side as well, to kind of break down those barriers and make it easier to propose. Those are two highlight projects that we have in the yearbook and that we have gone out and spoke to industry and government about. By the way, getting back to the project of the National Park Service that you mentioned, yes, it was not a giant procurement at a couple mm-hmm. of hundred thousand dollars, but it was something that you can see could easily get hung up because it right. was to make interactive displays and presentations in a particular national park building mm-hmm. setting in one of the remote parks. And, you know, those things can run into all kinds of artistic, yeah. cultural, language, you name it, types of mm-hmm. roadblocks. So I think just to underscore the fact that they did get it done quickly using those techniques is important. And you yes. said 25 years in the Defense Department. What's it like mm-hmm. coming over to a place like DHS, which you know has law enforcement elements similar to mm-hmm. somewhat to some elements in DOD, but it must feel like a totally different lake. It, it is definitely a totally different lake. It's interesting from a mission perspective, because in the DOD, our support is in support of the warfighter. And I have two children who are currently serving in the military. So that so that's a very personal mission, right? And it's support the warfighter, make sure they're safe, make sure that they have the food, the resources, everything they need to be able to protect our country and serve abroad. Coming over to DHS, it's just as important of a mission, but it touches more of my day to day. So that's been the most humbling part of coming over to DHS is walking through an airport. I'm seeing TSA and the mission that they they support. Uh, Living now in the Washington, D.C. area, all the federal law enforcement and seeing how FLETC touches that. Seeing how FEMA, when there are hurricanes, go out and touch the citizens day to day. Immigration, getting visas for people to visit our country. Every single one of these missions touches us day to day as a citizen. So it, it's it's very humbling and it makes it that much more important to support because if we're able to support these missions, it ties into the DOD mission because every single warfighter is a citizen of this country. So we are, in essence, still supporting them. Katie Crompton is director of the Procurement Innovation Lab at Homeland Security Department. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, along with a link to that latest annual report. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how federal acquisitions can help recovery in Maui. But first, count the inspector general among the challenges facing Social Security. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Social Security Administration is on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list, mainly because of its long-term fiscal uncertainty and whether it can pay the benefits it owes retired Americans. But it also has other internal management problems stemming from its Office of Inspector General. That's according to my next guest. She's director of the Effective and Accountable Government Program at the Project on Government Oversight, POGO, Faith Williams. Faith, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. And the Office of Inspector General seems to be, by published reports and research you have done, they retaliate against whistleblowers? Yes, they have. And excuse my voice, by the way, I'm fighting a summer cold, as are so many of us. But what we have learned and what the whistleblowers have reported to us is that not only have they faced whistleblower retaliation in the past, but that whistleblower retaliation is ongoing. Now, one of the whistleblowers, Deborah Shaw, She won her initial case at the Merit Systems Protection Board, and that case is now on appeal. 
The other was the blower settled after essentially a financially ruinous suit. So her whistleblowing retaliation has not been confirmed in the same way, but we certainly believe what they tell us. And do we know the nature of what it is they're blowing the whistle on? We do, in fact. So it all has to do with a program called the Civil Monetary Penalty Program. And that is essentially, it levies fines against people who have wrongfully received certain social security benefits. And that might sound like it makes sense. It does make sense. In fact, you know, the program's been around since 1995. And if someone is receiving benefits when they shouldn't be, or if they're receiving too much, it does make sense to investigate that and levy a fine, uh, you know, as needed. And for uh, many years, more than 20 years, investigators in the Social Security Administration's Office of Inspector General, who administer this program, would take many factors into account when levying these penalties. So they would take, for example, was it intentional, right? Or was it an accident? What is someone's financial state? What's their ability to pay? These are frequently, if not the vast majority of folks, you know, these are elderly people. These are people with disabilities. These are people struggling to make ends meet. These are people that hit maybe all of those categories. And so they took those factors into account and starting around 2017 or so that shifted. They no longer took someone's financial state into account, for example, And as a result, and in an attempt, we think, to really juice the numbers of this program to make it look like it was really bringing in lots of money, these penalties became exorbitant. And these two whistleblowers spoke out in alarm, not just at the size of the penalties that were being levied, which were so unusual, but also about the change in procedure. And that procedure was statutory. So they blew the whistle on that as well. Right. So if the Office of Inspector General then investigates these cases sounds like they were not following the statutory requirements for bringing a case against someone receiving Social Security, and then they were also overdoing it on the penalty side. Then to whom do the whistleblowers bring their claims? Do they bring it to the very office that is supposed to investigate the claims? They do. And and actually, that's a key responsibility of inspectors general is statutorily their counsel. The OIG counsel is also the whistleblower coordinator. So that person is responsible for training their agency on whistleblower protocols, procedures, things like that. And so, yes, when these two Office of Inspector General whistleblowers raised the alarm, they did so to folks in their own office. And they were not just shut down, but they were then retaliated against. They were escorted out of the building a few months after initially raising the alarm. They were placed on a combination of sort of paid leave and then one was terminated and, and then brought back and, you know, et cetera. But yes, it's sort of like the foxes guarding the hen house in, the, in this instance. We're speaking with Faith Williams. She's director of the Effective and Accountable Government Program at the Project on Government Oversight. But it sounds like, you know, and I want to get more to the retaliation and the aftermath, but it sounds like there's a built-in conflict of interest when the Office of Inspector General both looks at these particular types of overpayment cases, but then also receives whistleblower complaints about performance of the Office of Inspector General itself on that very program. Well, it's it's interesting you say that. I think when the inspector general office works as intended to be, it is not a conflict of interest. These folks are supposed to adhere to, quote, the highest ethical principles. So when inspectors general are doing their jobs, are fulfilling their missions, I should say, to their fullest extent, they are absolutely the right place for whistleblowers, and they are the right place to report government waste, fraud, and abuse. But in instances where inspectors general or folks in the Office of Inspector General 
are not fulfilling their mission, yes, it becomes very much this catch-22 of, I want to report wrongdoing, but what do I do? And that is why there are mechanisms in place, like SIGI, the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. That's why SIGI exists, to sort of help watch the watchdogs. Do we know whether SIGI is looking into the OIG at Social Security? We do. Now, when I asked Siggy for comment recently, they would not confirm that Inspector General Ennis or her office is under investigation. But we do know from other reports that Siggy is looking into what has been happening. And Siggy is not the only one investigating what's going on there. It's truly the high fines and the change in procedure are one element of a very dysfunctional Office of Inspector General. So, for example, Dozens of auditors, investigators, and other staff in the OIG have quit or retired, many indicating frustration with the office's leadership. During the pandemic, Inspector General Ennis monitored the keystrokes of some of her investigators who go out and investigate these claims. And I use that phrase deliberately. They go out and investigate these claims. Yes, some investigations, you can pick up a phone or send an email, but sometimes you need to, so to speak, pound the pavement and see what's going on. So you're not necessarily sitting at your computer Yet she monitored keystrokes. Some investigators were disciplined or terminated, and the tactic fueled a no-confidence vote from the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, which is pretty unusual, I would say. And all of this has an impact on morale and ongoing investigations. I mentioned the SIGI investigation, but the acting Social Security Commissioner announced an investigation last year. The Office of Special Counsel, which specifically looks at whistleblower retaliation, is also investigating The Office of Personnel Management audited the IG's workforce planning strategy. They completed that audit, but other concerns were raised about staff departures. So now they're digging into that as well. Sounds like they're losing places to hide. But I want to get back to the whistleblowers themselves. You said one just gave in because of a ruinous lawsuit. What was that mechanism? She was suing the agency to get her job back? or Well, she basically took her claim to the MSPB, the Merit Systems Protection Board, which is where, you know, employees can go to have recourse against grievances filed against them, terminations, things like that. And there's some subtleties in there, but that's essentially what it does. But these employees, they pay their own legal bills to do that. And that makes sense. They, they can't use the agency's counsel in, in a case like this, and, and of, of course, but these fees are truly ruinous. I mean, you're talking about potentially tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yes, you could get your back pay and legal fees, but that can take 10 years sometimes, literally. It can take a long time. I mentioned that one of the whistleblowers, an administrative judge, found you know prima facie retaliation in her case. Office of Inspector General at Social Security appealed that decision. And so all of those remedies are on hold until that appeal is heard or decided, I should say. And there's a huge backlog at the MSPB because it was without quorum for many years. So I I know the folks over there are working as hard as they can to get through their backlog, but it could be years. And the position of IG, of Inspector General at Social Security, is that person appointed by the commissioner or is that one of the presidentially appointed IGs? Yes, that's a presidentially appointed inspector general. Which means that the acting commissioner, and I think she's been acting now for the entire length of the Biden administration, I don't know how she stays in the job because of the administrative rules around that, but nevertheless she's there, really can't get rid of the inspector general if she wanted to. No, she cannot. Um, And so that is why Project on Government Oversight has urged President Biden to remove Inspector General Ennis. And we know that it can be fraught when we talk about removing inspectors general, especially when we cast back to the last administration. But new rules have been put in place to tighten how and when inspector generals are removed. And those are good rules. 
And when an inspector general has overseen an office, if not personally retaliated against whistleblowers and has overseen so much dysfunction, that is a toxic inspector general and they must be removed. Faith Williams is director of the Effective and Accountable Government Program at the Project on Government Oversight, POGO. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her essay on this topic at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how federal acquisitions can help recovery in Maui. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Advanced contracts, GSA contracts for state and local governments, those are a couple of the avenues by which the federal government and its acquisition system can get aid to Maui as the Hawaiian district recovers from fire. We get more now from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And so far, it seems to be Hawaiians helping themselves until the federal aid actually starts flowing, so far as we can tell. Tell us more about how contracting can play a part here. Tom, the government has set up several acquisition programs specifically tailored to issues like this for disaster prevention, relief, and recovery. Two of the most notable ones are FEMA's Advanced Contract Program and the Cooperative Purchasing Capability through GSA's Multiple Award Schedule Contracts. Together, these are pre-awarded contracts that have the ability not just for federal agencies to use them, but in the case of GSA Multiple Award Schedules, Tom, state and local governments can have access to these contracts for their disaster relief needs. We're talking here about a wide array of solutions and products, everything from basic stuff that you'd expect like food, shelter, water, but also things like phone service, security, logistics assistance. So there's a pretty wide array of things that are available here where acquisition can really come in and assist a local or a state government in meeting their basic needs on the road to recovery. Now, the GSA schedules were generally open to state and municipal government, county government during COVID, but that general access was turned off, I think, when the emergency was declared over. But in another emergency like this one that's localized, then the GSA becomes available again. Is that how it works? It really kind of depends on the schedule contract, but almost every schedule contract has a built-in capability to serve customers at the state and local level during times of disaster preparedness or relief. So anytime you've got a disaster that's been declared, and you know certainly this series in Maui unfortunately qualifies, you can use the GSA schedule, whether you're a federal agency or a state or local agency, trying to recover. And, and again, it's pretty broad spread. You, know, you have almost everything under the sun that you can get from the schedules program you know, shelter, all kinds of assistance with IT, telecommunications, things of that nature, and you can get it quickly. And then there are the FEMA advance contracts, which means that FEMA can buy quickly on behalf of a stricken area where FEMA people arrive. That's right, Tom. Not everybody knows about these. These are the FEMA advance contracts. FEMA has put in place over a hundred standing contracts, some of which are for FEMA people to be able to use quickly so that they can do their job. But many of them are so-called end-user focused, where things like even durable medical equipment can be provided to stricken areas quickly and easily. 
with minimal red tape so that people get the help that they need in a short period of time. You know, these contracts that FEMA put together kind of grew up over a series of national and natural disasters, and FEMA really has turned to and put this program together. The only thing I would say that could hold up some of this, Tom, is to the extent that state and local governments need help from federal contracting officers, you know, here we are in the middle of the busiest season for federal government buying. So we could find some of the acquisition resources stretched thin. But even then, what traditionally happens in an area of disaster like that is that contracting and other officials are taken off of what they're doing on a daily basis and put into where they're needed the most. So I would imagine that Hawaii would get the resources it needs from the federal government pretty quickly. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And I wanted to switch gears right now and ask you about the order to return to the office or the urging of agencies by the White House to get their people back into their offices, at least some semblance of regular period during their two-week pay periods. My question is, does this benefit contractors who have also been absent, whereas many of them were on site, you know, with a different colored badge, so to speak, for all these years? Tom, I think that the administration's order to return more federal employees to work does benefit contractors. It benefits contractors in several different ways. One, if you're a product contractor, somebody that's been selling print management solutions or furniture or consumables, things of that nature. Not having federal agencies full of people has really hurt your business since COVID hit. And returning federal workers to their offices on a more consistent basis is going to provide additional opportunities for these contractors. As offices need to be re-equipped, they need to be bought up to speed, they need to be modernized, there'll be a whole bunch of physical upgrade opportunities and physical support opportunities for those types of contractors. But it goes even beyond that, Tom. If you're a company of any type selling to the government, what I've talked about before, the fact that as a government contractor, you really want to be in front of your customer physically And your government customers should want to be in front of you. Even though virtual meetings can get us to a certain point, Tom, there's really no substitute for getting together in person. And now that agencies are going to be going back to work a little bit more, contractors are going to have increased opportunities to go meet people who may have been working at far-flung, decentralized, home-based offices. And now, even if you're not going to be able to get into a federal building, they have entry restrictions or things of that nature. There's still going to be the coffee shop downstairs or around the corner. People are going to be there. I think that that's a real benefit for government, too, because they're going to be able to have a better sense of what their contractor partners can provide and therefore they can write better statements of work and do more efficient acquisitions. I guess it's hard to have an industry day in your dining room with people parading through. (laughs) But it sounds like then that this will aid both sales of goods and products and so forth, but also for those body shops that have people on location with the federal government day by day doing services type of work, support type of work, whatever it is, the collaboration there will also be a much greater potential. Well, I think that's right, Tom. And there is really a benefit to collaboration. And this is kind of a larger issue that transcends government business. This is something that we've seen the commercial sector come back into an office for a certain number of days. It comes with maybe commuting into that location, collaborate to reestablish those contacts, especially for younger people. And it's very true in government, too. If you've got a 
younger, newer hire in government that's been working remotely two years of their federal service, you know, they may not have a real idea of what their agency mission is or how they fit into it. Being inside the physical building can really help give that context. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The State Department is on track to issue a record-breaking number of passports this year, but it's still dealing with a major backlog and long wait times. It's trying to hire more passport specialists, promising to return to pre-pandemic processing times by the end of the year. Members of Congress say more action is needed, and now there's legislation. We get the latest from Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And Jory, what is the current status? How long is it taking for them to issue passports or fulfill applications? So at this peak summer travel season, the State Department is taking about 10 to 13 weeks for routine passport processing. If you pay them an extra $60, they are estimating they will spend about seven to nine weeks to process your passport. That $60, keep in mind, is on top of the $130 application fee you're already paying. To give you a sense of some of the frustrations, I recently caught up with Carlo Alst outside the Washington Passport agency in downtown D.C. He had tried to apply for a renewed passport online. The process was really taking a long period of time. He did this back in January, and I was talking to him in July, and so he had missed a trip to Italy in mid-March, and it was really getting down to the wire for him. He was trying to get back to Ecuador to see his mother, who's not doing well. And I was on the phone all the time trying to get somebody to help me, and I was so hey, listen, unfortunately, even though you pay for the expedited service, everybody else is doing the same thing. So basically, the expedited service doesn't really work because everything is expedited, which means nothing is expedited. That's really sad because in my family, we had a expedited need many years ago like that day because a plane was leaving in the morning, so to speak. And by golly, those amazing employees there said, just sit right here. We'll get it done. Just don't leave the office. And an hour later, there was a passport. It cost, but by golly, they did it. So what is leading to all of these delays now? It's not like they laid off people during the COVID pandemic. No, thankfully, they did not have to lay anyone off, but they are still reeling from COVID-related impacts here. Now, back in 2020, when the department was getting next to no applications, the Bureau of Consular Affairs is a fee-for-funded part of the department. And so its revenue really cratered. Congress had to step in through the various COVID stimulus programs and give the State Department some additional funding to cushion that blow. But it only recently has gotten back into the hiring swing of things. And so the surge in applications has just far outpaced the ability for the department to rehire people or hire additional people. And so we had Senator Mark Warner outside that passport agency explain just how we got here. You had the perfect storm of hiring freezes, a dramatic decrease in even applications as people forgot about international travel during COVID, and then this huge surge at numbers that are almost unprecedented. You know, the highest number I think the passport office has ever in terms of total products is about 22 million. I think we're going to hit 25 million this year. Yeah. So people are hitting the skyways and waterways to get out of the country and come back. Is the state department able to accommodate these last minute in-person appointments, which, you know, some people just leave things down to the wire. So in some cases, the answer is yes. 
yes, but that often involves reaching out to your member of Congress or in Warner's case, your senator's office. He has been inundated with requests. He said that he's had to help 1,500 Virginia constituents this year alone to get their passports. And prior years, prior to the pandemic, that was, you know, a couple hundred here or there on any given year. An example here, I spoke to David Asher, who is a resident of Richmond. He was outside that passport office and he was on his way to a rabbi conference in Montreal. He was going to speak there, realized, oops, his passport expired in February. So he had to go through the office of his congressman, Rob Whitman, to uh, get a very last minute in-person appointment. I was really stuck in a bind and uh, government worked well for me. Everybody likes to criticize government, but it worked out pretty well for me this time. Went to my congressman, told him I messed up, and he was able to get me an appointment last minute. So the rabbi made it there literally on a wing and a prayer. So that was David Asher, again, a Richmond resident, uh, really lucked out there with the application. But we did hear from Warner saying that, again, his office has been inundated with requests and that there's got to be more that the department can do rather than members of Congress stepping in. We have about a 95 percent hit rate. It shouldn't be your normal course of business that you have to go through your U.S. senator's office, you know, to get your passport renewed on a timely basis. In other words, get me out of here and get the State Department back in the middle here. What about this pending legislation to address the backlog, Jory? Senators James Langford and Pete Ricketts, they are working on some legislation that would give the department more ways to handle a caseload when this surge does happen, as it has been cyclically over the past couple of summers. This upcoming bill, which is still in the works, it would require the department to develop a reserve workforce that it can re assigned to passport services when these surges do happen. What are the State Department's plans then for new hires in the meantime? So there are a couple hundred hires in the pipeline for the Bureau of Consular Affairs. They did a 10 percent surge of its workforce this year so far. They're looking to grow its workforce by an additional 10 percent. One of the holdups here beyond just the usual federal hiring process is that these are employees that need to go through a security clearance process. They are handling sensitive documents. They're handling a document that allows people to come in and out of the country. And so they need to go through an extra rigorous process to do all of that. In the meantime, the existing workforce, they've had to deal with some really severe amounts of overtime. Between January and June of this year, the Bureau of Consular Affairs authorized 300 to 400,000 overtime hours each month. It sounds like there's a big disconnect then between their revenue, which depends on incoming passport applications, and their budget, which is predicated on normal processing and the workload and the number of employees they need to do the normal workload. And so they've got this overtime and hiring and maybe bonus incentive situation that is not covered by the fees because that's not how they were set up in the first place. A couple of factors there you point out there, Tom, that the workforce that might need to handle a surge in the summertime might not be the permanent workforce that the Bureau would need to handle this in their lower months, their quieter months, let's say the dead of January or something like that. But something Warner did point out is that it has been a while since the department has revised its rate setting, its fees. No one enjoys higher fees, but he says that should be something the department should look at if it's looking at resources to make sure this doesn't happen again. But the State Department would require congressional approval to change the rates. And of course, that would be a very unpopular thing to do. No one likes paying more for their passports. It's already a significant cost already. But clearly, the past couple of years have shown that the department needs to do something to get out from under these backlogs. And by the way, the backlog doesn't affect the government publishing office, which manufactures the passports. Yeah, interestingly enough, I don't think that they have had any 
real issues on their end of things. I think they've been successfully trucking along with their workload over at the GPO. But I think for the department side of things, it's more of a just a matter of getting enough people processing and making sure that those applications have everything that they need before it goes over to GPO's lane of things. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 